This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Teachers Well. Teachers Well empowers educators with the skills and resources to lead school wellbeing initiatives that are responsive to the wellbeing and learning needs of all students. One of the resources Teachers Well offers is the Compass Journal, which is designed to support the wellbeing of teachers throughout the school year. The Teachers Well Compass puts weekly strengths-based reflective prompts and a series of systems-aware collaborative tools in your hands that you can put directly into practice. And the best thing, the Compass is date-free, meaning you can pick it up and use it at any time during the school week or the school year. You can purchase a Compass by visiting teacherswell.com. We want to thank Teachers Well for sponsoring this episode. Their founders are a pretty cool team. SOS Palestine is an NGO, not-for-profit, that was established in 1966 to support children and young people at risk due to family breakdown or the loss of a parent in Palestine. They offer programs to strengthen families and to provide out-of-home care services in Gaza and the West Bank. As you can imagine, they are currently working harder than ever and financial support is needed. You can learn more about their work or make a donation by visiting sos-palestine.org. I'm Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. I started this podcast as I realised that some of the biggest learning occurs when I meet great people, listen to their stories and dive into great conversation with them. We cover the topics of trauma, healing, education, well-being, and everything in between. In this episode, I am joined by Martin Bisp, the co-founder of Empire Fighting Chance, which is a boxing gym in the UK providing boxing therapy to vulnerable young people. We discuss how Empire began, some of the successes, and the importance of learning from failures. Boxing therapy is starting to get global attention, so if you're a therapist with an interest, you'll get a lot out of this episode. All right, welcome to the 25th episode of the Wagtails podcast. I'm pretty excited this evening. I've actually got someone joining me all the way from the UK. I've got Martin joining me, who is the co-founder of Empire Fighting Chance. How are you going, Martin? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Really appreciate you joining me. I know it's the evening for me, but it's morning for you, so you've gotten up a bit earlier to jump on the podcast (laughs) today. So thank you so much for that. I'd say it's my pleasure, but it's eight o'clock, so it was um, a slight struggle at times to be ready in time. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, so for a lot of people listening, they'll have no idea what I'm talking about when I say you're from Empire Fighting Chance. So do you want to just give us a bit of a background and a bit of info? Yeah, um, Empire Fighting Chance are a charity based predominantly in Bristol, in England. We use boxing training, non-contact boxing, underpinned by psychologists and therapists. We work with some of the UK's most vulnerable young people. They often come from quite complex backgrounds. They may be involved in drugs and gangs and violence, or they may be on the verge of being thrown out of school. And, and what we try and do is um, work with them and get them back into a place where they go back into school, they get jobs and, and they carry on with their lives, maybe exiting gangs or the system of violence. Yeah. And how long's it been around? How, how long's Empire been going for? Well, uh, that's a... That's the story in itself. So um, we unofficially started in 2006. So I've run the uh, Empire Amateur Boxing Club since probably about 2000, maybe, maybe 1999. And um, I was working at the time full time as a business analyst for investment companies. 
and the um nobody ever wants to coach on a friday it's a session that nobody wants to do so i used to go into work and then stop in the gym on the way home hang about for an hour or so run the session and i'd either be take a boxer somewhere in you know uh, to, to to compete or i'd go home and it was a Friday when my co-founder Jamie and I were sat in the, the gym office and we saw two young men whose families we vaguely knew and they were dealing drugs in the park opposite. And for reasons that I honestly don't think I fully understood at the time, but in hindsight, I was sick to death of picking needles up before we trained. We were sick to death of prostitutes accosted people using the gym. We were fed up with addicts in the doorway. We kind of went home and said, look, this has to stop. And we had a whole conversation about nobody cares, there's nothing to do, um, Nobody will give us a job. And we kind of like, we care, come back into the gym. And we sort of semi-dragged them back into the gym to do a boxing session. Didn't think anything more of it. They came back on the Monday with a couple of friends, a Tuesday, a couple more. And in the end, although ironically, the original two dropped out quite quickly, we ended up with 50 young people coming five days a week. Wow. And Jamie and a bit like, well, I don't know if why was the expression we were using. We were a bit like, oh, what are we going to do? So we were doing two days each, flipping a coin for day three. <laughs> And that went on for months. Um, and then a school rang up. And this was 2006. So in the UK, obviously, we've gone through um, something called austerity policies, which have cut school budgets. But in 2006, the schools had budget. And the school rang me up and said, um, we've been working with Denzel. His behaviour's improved. Would you consider working with Jamal? We were like, yeah, we can do that. But we're going to charge you. And I don't know what anybody knows about professional boxing, but most professional boxers can't make a living from the sport. Um, the vast majority, probably 99% of them had jobs, maybe one or two jobs. And it's almost like an expensive hobby, um, mm -hmm. being a professional boxer. So we had a couple of young men who'd boxed for me as amateurs that wanted to go on and become professional. And we kind of said, look, there's some work here. You can deliver school sessions, but you have to cover the after school as well. And then in between, you can do some personal training and training. So that was kind of it. Um, and truthfully, another school would ring up and another school would ring up. And Jamie and I were just like, oh, okay, we can pay the boys a bit more. And never thought anything of it. Um, at the time, I just had my second daughter. So my wife was doing all our admin for free. So me, Jamie and, and Catherine were doing the, the kind of back office or managing and the, the, the two people that were getting paid by the coaches. Um, that went on probably another three or four months when two things happened, which I suppose ultimately has ended up where I've ended up. We had a young man sent to us who was really struggling with maths, um, but we didn't know at the time. And he'd come, he'd set a circuit up. He was polite. He'd chat. He was friendly, wanted to hang around at the end. And the school said, look, we've got to throw him out. We can't, just can't deal with this anymore. And we couldn't understand it. And in the end, we sat him down and said, look, what's going on? This is madness. And he said, I, I just don't get maths. So rather than hold my hand up, I turn the table over. I shout, I swear. Everybody thinks I'm cool. And then... um I don't get embarrassed. And we were like, yeah, but if you get thrown out of school, it, it becomes pretty serious. So we did some real basic numeracy. If you do three minutes boxing, um, or sorry, three rounds boxing, and each round was two minutes, how many minutes have you boxed? And that kind of stuff, just to try and keep him in school and build his confidence. And then we always say within two weeks, we had a young man sent to us who had obvious mental health issues. And I rang the school and I kind of went, look, he's not naughty. He's not well. He needs support. And they were a bit like, we haven't got many. We don't know what to do with him. We kind of want him off site, really. Um, so I rang the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service in the UK. I said, can I book him in? We had a conversation about, oh, is he at crisis point? I don't think so. Has he tried to kill himself? No, then we can't see him at all. Oh, but if we could, it would be. Now, at the time, and it's worse now, but it was 12 months. And I remember thinking, bear in mind, I came from an investment background, and I was used to getting things done almost. <laughs> I was like, well, how the hell can you be in a position where a kid could be at crisis point and not be able to access a service? 
So that was it, really. Jamie and I decided from then on in we were going to build programs to try and make a lasting change. Um, they'd become more sophisticated, but at the time we would, we'd realized that if we were doing something physical, like hitting the bags or hitting the pads, young people would talk to you. So actually, if I said, oh, how's your day been? They looked at you, well, what's it got to do with you? If they were hitting the bag and you said, how's your day been? They just start talking. Hmm. So we used the sport. We built psychology and therapy around it. That went on for um, a few years, no plan at all, actually, just wanted to help some kids locally. And in 2012, I was invited to something at Channel 4 in, in England and met somebody about an international charity and he sort of said, you should become a charity. You do what we do. You should do it. And kind of from there, really, we became a charity. 2013, we now work with directly with about 4,000 young people. We have um, trained partners across the UK. They work with about 8,000 young people. So we kind of work now with probably 12,000 young people, starting from those two in the park. Amazing. What an incredible story. Um, and for you, Martin, as well, like what experience did you have? Like what connection did you have to boxing? Like when you approached those young people to come into the gym, I'm assuming you sort of knew that there was therapeutic benefit or or some sort of benefit to connect with them in that way. So is that something you had experienced yourself? I'd love to tell you that that was exactly what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> I I think for us and for me, boxing has just been an environment where everybody's accepted. Mm. It's um, it's a sport that's much maligned, and I 100% get it. And it's a sport that's very polarizing, which I also 100% understand. Yeah. But I think people like me and thousands of people like me, sometimes the boxing gym is just a place where you can, I don't want to say feel safe necessarily, but you feel you belong. Mm. And, you know, you, you have a fairly diverse crowd at any boxing gym. And we run, even with the, there's boxing sessions take place in the gym and you might have a lawyer standing next to a, uh, a criminal or something, you know, and everybody gets on. Yeah. You kind of leave your ego and you leave your your sort of day stuff at the door. And I, I guess I literally thought to myself, well, I think we can get them in the gym to at least get them off the streets in the short term. Yeah. Um, that was really all I was thinking. It was only the more I understood and the more I spoke to young people, the more I thought we could do more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah. And were you a boxer yourself or just a coach always? Um, I was a, yeah, I was a very poor junior amateur boxer. Um <laughs> Well, I shouldn't say that publicly. I was, I think coaching, I came back, I was about 28 and I wanted to box again. And I wanted to have one more like dance under the lights. And, and then I had a car crash and suffered some neck injuries and stuff, which has been a real problem for me ever since. And as a result of that, it was kind of, I started coaching truthfully. Mm-hmm. And it was James' dad that, that sort of got me to do a bit of coaching and it's kind of gone from there. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me because for me, one, I train in boxing. I've only competed once. Um, and then I've worked with young people and I've used boxing with them as well. And I think that's someone, someone actually just sent me a pa- your page a long time ago and said, Hey, you should check out what these guys are doing because it's very similar to, you know, what you, you want to do with young people. Um, but I was working in a school at the time and I actually experienced a lot of resistance sometimes from other school leaders or from parents around boxing itself. So even when it's in a no contact way, people assume that there's sort of a violent association with boxing as well. And I was just wondering your if you ever get pushback like that and how you've tackled views like that around it. We yeah, we I'd say we get more pushback now. Oh sorry, then than we do now. So I remember we had one conversation with a head teacher who said and she said to me, and Jamie, so what you're saying is you want me to give you the kids that we're struggling to manage. 
And we said, yeah. And then she said, and you're going to teach him how to fight. And we were like, no, it's not as simple as that. And she went, well, that's what it's saying. So in the early days, we had a lot of resistance. And we were so confident that what we did worked. We used to offer sessions for free. And we'd say to a school, okay, we'll give you four free sessions. And if at the end of that you think this doesn't work, then we could just shake hands and move on. Um, and we hardly ever lost a school because they realized the benefits of just having someone to talk to. And then there was a, a chap, a less professional footballer actually, that was a inclusion manager in the school. And he had 10 young people that would have been excluded. And they came on our program and nine stayed in school. And he went on a, he went on the radio and he started talking about our work publicly. And I think that that started to chip away at the resistance as well. But I'd say in the first few months, year, you know, maybe your first year, you had to hit the person who got sport and the one that understood what boxing might mean. Mm. And then those were the ones that could open the door for you. But there were, there's a natural resistance to what boxing is supposed to represent. Yeah, yeah, especially in schools where they've probably broken up fights and they do, they think you're about to teach them how to fight or encourage them to fight more yeah. as well. Yeah, so if I was a young person, Martin, that was like coming in for the very first time, what would I expect from a session? Like what would it look like? Um, so there's, there's a broad thing that we would expect you to use boxing, but beyond that, they're very much young person-led. So... We don't call them mentors and we don't call them therapists, even though the young person and family know their access and therapy, for example. The boxing therapist, we would call them a coach in the gym. So the expectation is that the um, before they arrive, the um, coach will be sat in reception because that's an important factor. Walking through a boxing gym can be mm -hmm. a big deal. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that you know who the person is. You're waiting for them. They're smiling at you. They're making you feel comfortable. Then it the topics and the conversation – if they want to talk at all, because they might not want to talk at all or entirely led by the young person. But what we would do is we would do, well, we do a traditional session. So you might skip shadow box, hit the pads, hit the bag, do a circuit. You know, some of it will be dictated to by what the young person wants to do uh, and where they are. But traditionally stuff like pads or the bag is a very good way of engaging conversation, mm. especially when they're trying to be taught. If you're trying to teach somebody a combination, they're so desperate to get throwing six punches right that they don't think about what they're saying. They start to open up. Um, but we believe that once you get active, obviously the endorphins that take place, you become in a slightly better mood, more receptive to having conversation. Um, and the therapists that we got say that traditional talking therapy may take six sessions, sometimes seven sessions to get a young person to engage. They say often in session one or two, they get engagement from the young people we work with. Like the sport and the physical activity has to be the, the the one that breaks the barriers down. Mm, I love that. I love that so much because, yeah, I think we need to think outside the box in the way we do get young people to talk or just people in general to talk about challenges. The whole concept of going into a room and sitting face-to-face, -face, you know, and just unpacking exactly what you've been through or what's going on for you is a very daunting thought. Um, and there's so much about boxing that's so good for us as well, um, just in the way it does regulate us and things like that too. Um, so how long can a young person work with you, Martin? So if, if I've come in for that first session, yeah. is there a limit or can I be there as long as I want? Um, not as long as you want, really, because I think that what we're conscious of is we don't want to create a dependency on us. We think that would be harmful. So we we would say that they, they'd have, say, 12 to 20 sessions, but then we've got, 
what we, for want of a better expression, we then can pathway them into smaller groups so they could still be in the gym forever. It's just that I think a one-to-one for two years would be harmful with credit dependency that would be very hard to break. And so we challenge the coaches and, and therapists to say, well, okay, what does two more mean? What what would you get from two more sessions that you're not going to get from finishing now or whatever? Because it always should be young person-centric. And too often, I don't know so much about the Australian system, but the UK system, I think, is kind of built around certain premises, one of them which actually is built by white middle-class people for white mm-hmm. middle-class people. Um and then there's an element of like, we know best, you're going to do this. And after four weeks, you're going to do this or whatever it may be. And I just not sure that's right. So we, we challenge the therapist in particular to make sure that they are only ever acting in the young person's best interest. So what does one more give? What does one more give? Then alongside that, we have dropping sessions, um, which are run by our own therapeutic staff. So it could be a small group of six young people. So you could take them from a one to one to a small group. And then from a school more group, they can. Well, if they want to, they can join the gym for free. So we have a, an active boxing gym that runs box fit sessions, like um, boxer size sessions, as well as people who want to compete. Um, and you have free membership for life. So any young person that's been to the, the the charitable side can have access to the gym at any time they want for as long as they want. So we try and get them in a position where they're socialising and they're normalising their life, rather than having this intense relationship on us, which ultimately they've still got to move through that to to get on with with what they need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what sort of outcomes have you seen? So I know you were talking about young people will stay in school and things like that. Do you have any yeah. um, any sort of case study examples of, of a young person that's come through that you know their story and where they've ended up? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really, some of them is dead simple. You know, a young person has just gone back into school. That's that's all, you know, they, they've come to us and they've gone back into school and they've stayed in school. We've got young people that have exited gangs. At the moment in Bristol, we're going through quite an unpleasant period. I mean, four people who have used our gym that we've worked with in two years have been killed during gang disputes in knife crime. Mm, and so... Hear that. That's awful. It is... Yeah, it, it, it's hard. It's hard for the team as well, uh, as you can imagine, because they mm. build such a bond up with a young person. Um, but even recently, we've had someone who was, you know, involved in stuff that, that, that wasn't good for them, that's now got a job, been through the program, qualified as a chef or got a job in so that there's outcomes that we take some of those that are probably in the most trouble or the most vulnerable and we mm-hmm. get them we get them work or we get them back into school. And then we have one girl, I've never forgotten her first session, she wouldn't come in the gym. So we did it through the car window. The coach spoke to her through the car window. Yeah. Um and he was like, Yeah, I don't know if she's gonna come back, but I did the whole session talking to basically that um with her through the window. She came back week two, kind of came in the gym a bit. And then a couple of years ago, we follow up every now and again to rig up to make sure everybody's okay and what's going on. And she sent us through her personal statement and she was going to university and she wanted to do psychology. And she said that she wanted to do be a psychologist because of her experience with Empire Biting Chance. Mm, and there was a whole thing on her personal statement about what we had done or the coaches had done to inspire her to to help others. So it, it can be that. We, we've got a number of young people into university, for example. So, yeah, the success stories are, are plentiful. Mm, yeah, which is so great to hear. And I'm curious as well, do you know a lot about your prison system over there? And is there have you ever liaised with them? And is there any work going on within the prison? Um, boxing currently is something the prisons aren't interested in. Mm. 
So it's pretty much impossible to, to run a... I think it might even be banned to run a boxing session within a prison, which strikes me as a bit of a nonsense, to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, we do stuff with offenders. People are coming out of prison, for example. There's programs, um, and we do partnership work with youth offending teams. We're doing some work with a youth offending team at the moment where we've trained their staff to deliver our Box Champions program. And the last set of stats I saw, their reoffending rate was 2.4 times lower than other programs and the national average. So we know that you're 2.4 times less likely to reoffend if you went on an Empire Fighting Chance Pro program than you are if you, you know, do the national average. So we know that those kind of things are working. It's just, it's pretty impossible to break into a system that doesn't believe in boxing, I guess. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? It's like really trying to change the system <laughs> from the outside. Um, yeah, which is crazy. I'm curious as to how this all gets funded too, Martin. So you're talking about young people come in, it's all charity-based. They can stay on yeah. forever, charity-based, like, you know, not paying for the gym. How how does this all get funded? Like if someone wanted to replicate a model or or start something similar, even if it's not in boxing, how does this all come about? <laughs> yeah, I, um, the, it, we we're funded probably got three main streams if i'm honest so we've got grant funding so all the big national funders fund us and a number of those funders have funded us for a number of years so it's we often get multi-year grants um then we have a fairly supportive community in bristol that fundraise for us um corporates that give us money individual donors that give us money um events that take place to raise money for us and then we also because we work with a lot of schools we say to the schools that they have to pay for every session you know they're being funded for the young person they need to pay us to for our time so those are the three i mean grants are the biggest and then the other two make up maybe 35 percent of our income yeah yeah which is so impressive to see as well and you're obviously gathering a lot of evidence like to prove that it's working so i'm sure that actually helps when people are trying to decide where to put their money as well yeah, I think it's the analyst in me. I am. Um, <laughs> I get a bit twitchy. I want to be seen. I need to almost prove to myself that what we do is worthwhile. Yeah. So um, I'm, we're sort of always looking at data, and we're actually going to go through a process now with a with a funder to to have a look at the best ways in which we can maximise and can um, record our impact. Mm. Because I think that we. Uh, and not just we, I think everybody in this, this kind of non-profit sector, we should be driving our impact. You know, our, our, our overriding concern should be, are we doing the right thing? What work are we doing? Is this work good enough? Are we making a difference? Are we meeting a need? And if we're not, you know, then like empire shouldn't exist. If we become an industry where we're just here to um, service ourselves and the staff, mm. then to be honest, we're a waste of time and we, we shouldn't be here. So, for me, the impact we make as a collective is all important, is the only thing that really matters. If I can't be sure that the young person and the kid that walks through that door next is not going to get the best possible chance of success, then I think we're failing. Mm, I love that mentality. To be honest, a lot of the sector, I think um, a lot of youth work sector, don't always have ways of measuring or don't always have a lot of evidence to back um, exactly what it is that they're doing. And I say that, and I'm not trying to be super critical, but I'm just very aware of it, having worked in the sector for a long time myself, uh, where we would have students being referred to different programs or all these outreach attempts and all these things that were great in theory, but you could just see the young person wasn't engaging, the outcomes weren't there. Um, and I was talking about a lot of young people that were sort of in the out-of-home care system in Australia as well. And I'm assuming you get a lot of young people in out-of-home care coming to your sessions? 
We do, yeah. Um, yeah. We we work with all the different services. We work with the police as well. So they might um, pick somebody up that was on the periphery of something and ring us up and say, look, I've got this young person. Would you work with them? Schools, parents. We get a lot of parent referrals at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, then those from what you know the, the, the looked after children and need the foster care system. We get lots of lots of um, referrals from from those as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, we get referrals from all over the city actually. And what what sort of criteria do they have to meet to be able to come? Like, is is are there young people that you actually say no to? Look, yeah, that's that's not someone we cater for. Um, less so about saying no. Although we're going to try again to understand who we best serve. So um, we're currently going through a process to understand, for example, who's best sorted uh, served by boxing therapy because we're only going to have finite resources. And we get to a point where I think, well, if a young person comes, are we able to look at the referral form, overlay risk, get an understanding of who's best place to help them, and then make sure they get the biggest possible chance of success through through us. Um, we try, if I'm honest, and this sounds terrible, but we try and limit those that could access help anywhere else. So we're really trying to work with those that are the most vulnerable, that are struggling, I guess, working class kids, kids from communities that maybe haven't got the financial resource or the parental support to navigate a system which pretty much is unfathomable to the best of us. Um, and so that, that's one of the things that we, we, we sort of really try and concentrate on. So we're looking at those that are really struggling or have been through multiple interventions and can't afford to pay or access help elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, which makes absolute sense as well. Um, and when I raise the young people that live in out-of-home care before too, what I see happening here in Australia is often there are these amazing services trying their best to do work with them, um, but there's always this sort of comment or feedback that they won't engage with the program, they won't attend the program, there's barriers to accessing it. Um, do you see that over there and, and what sort of has worked to enable them to attend or to, to not have that barrier if it's not there? Yeah, so we have this um, expression that I loathe <laughs> and they use it hard to reach. They, mm-hmm. they kind of have the, oh, it's hard to reach. Yeah. And I'm like, well, they're not hard to reach, are they? Because they'll come to the gym if they want to. So what you've got to do is talk to them. Yeah. I think that's what we're great at is, is assuming that we know best. Yeah, that's um, the thing, right? <laughs> well, just talk to them. That's what I say. Just talk to them. If, if they're not turning up, why not? So I think we learn as much. I monitor our dropout rates. And again, this is probably my... Um, control freakery but i say to the team why do they drop out let's let's look at the the reasons they drop out and let's understand if those are barriers that we can uh, it's not for everybody they might come don't like boxing yeah that's okay i understand that they come don't really want to be physical i get that as well but are there barriers here that we can remove by looking at what we do or how we position it so we do that quarterly and it's a kind of case of right these one-to-ones have dropped out why have they dropped out well they've done this okay so can we, yeah, we can get free bus passes. All right, let's do that. Whatever it may be. But it's important. You should look at your failures. Um, and you should really, in my opinion, those are the ones that you learn the most from. Mm. I kind of almost expect a kid to come to us and enjoy it, truthfully. I know the coaches are good. I know the therapists are good. I know we've created a nice environment. I know people tell me all the time they feel safe in, in the gym. So that kind of stuff. I, I'm almost expecting it to work. Yep. We need to learn much more from those that don't work because that's how I, we drive our delivery forward. I wish there was more people thinking like you in the field, <laughs> just in the field of working with young people in general. I think a lot of people that come into the field probably come with the um, 
like not the analyst background that you have and probably more have the, you know, the human lens on it, the like social work psychologist lens on, mm-hmm. on the work. And we don't have enough people actually doing the analytical work um, and evaluating what's working and what's not in the ways that are actually going to feed change over here, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just, you just don't want to be a busy fool, do you? Yeah. You kind of, yeah. you, you want to think you're making a difference. And the only way you do that is by analysing what you're doing, working out if it works. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I feel like it's it can be such reactive work sometimes. So people are constantly just reacting to what's in front of them and just and just trying to change it on the day, as opposed to taking the time to get that feedback and to change and tweak and and work from there as well. The way you're talking about, yeah, um, Martin. So we're coming like sort of towards the end of our time together. And what I do before we finish up a podcast is I actually ask every guest the same five questions to finish up. Um, and not necessarily boxing related, but there is one in there that is. <laughs> um, so you okay, okay if I ask you the five questions? Yeah. So the first one is, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Probably a professional footballer. Ah, oh, football, yep. And then you went into boxing instead? <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, and then somehow I ended up in charitable sector. So I guess who knows? Yeah. Did you pursue the football thing at all? Um, to a degree, I mean, I was, I think there was an element of um, unbelievable self-confidence in those that made it. So I played with young, um, you know, people my age that went on to become professional footballers. And I think they had something different about them, if I'm honest. Um, I could play, but they had a belief, an inner kind of steel that, you know, was rare. Yeah. So like that kind of determination, and I don't know, there was something about those that made it. There was that that un, unbridled self belief that I didn't see in most others, and I didn't have it. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, you got to give it everything, don't you? Absolutely everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, the second question is, what are your two top values? So if you could narrow it down to just um, two. Yeah, I think I don't know how we broaden this, but to me, integrity or whatever you want to call that, honesty. I think it's hard at times, but you should always be honest with people. You should be open. You should do the right thing. And sometimes mm-hmm. that right thing means, like we, example is we've refused money for Empire because I felt that the money wasn't right mm-hmm. and it actually would take us a direction that maybe we had some mission drift. So I think you need to stick to your, the kind of, I don't know whether you want to put that as the one, but sort of integrity is, is something that's really um, key to me in. Actually, loyalty is something that I believe in. I think people should be given opportunities. You should allow them to fail. You should mm-hmm. support them, help them build themselves up. We've become a culture at times where failure is seen as terrible and, and nobody really supports that. And I'd actually think if people aren't failing, they're not really trying to push things. They're not trying to do things differently. And a part of that comes through kind of honesty and supportiveness that you have to give them. I love that. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. That's a good one. Um, the third one is actually the boxing-related question. So mm-hmm. it's if you were going to have a pro boxing fight, what would be your walkout song? Oh, um, that was a good one. I don't know whether to go for humour or not. I might go for a sing-along like Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, because everybody in the crowd could get up there. And I think you need something that's going to get everybody singing and dancing. 
that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's a pretty iconic one. Um, we actually have a playlist now as well. So I ask every guest that question and I've, I've turned it into a playlist. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'll add it and I'll, I'll send it to you as well. <laughs> um, the fourth question is if you could collaborate with anyone dead or alive on any project you'd like, who would it be? Oh, um, I think probably just from our point of view and the work we're doing, it would be really good to um, to bring Muhammad Ali into um, Empire Fighting Chance as some kind of ambassador because mm. um, he was fearless. Absolutely. For what he believed in. And obviously with the boxing link, he, you know, you probably wouldn't have got anybody more articulate in loquacious and um, positive for what we were trying to do. Mm, 100%. Yeah, I'm not surprised you shared that answer. <laughs> um, and then the last question is, if you could make one recommendation as a step that anyone could take towards healing, what would it be? I think there has to be what we see is there's a kind of acknowledgement and an acceptance maybe of where you are. We deal with young people, especially that are always told that there's something wrong with them mm. and that they need to fix this and fix that. And one of the things we kind of almost do from day one is say, look, there's no wrong feelings. If you're angry, that's okay. If you're this, it's okay. And you see the weight lift from them. So, uh, uh, so uh, this is probably be a little bit clumsy because I'm not a qualified therapist, but that kind of acceptance of your situation and then, acceptance of who you are gives you the chance to move forward if you're always trying to change stuff and fight for things then it, it's it's difficult to give yourself the space to to grow mm, yeah no i love that great starting point for sure um so martin is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up the podcast today as well is there anything else you wanted to talk about or no i mean i suppose going back to your point this seems like a shameless plug but we um we have a program now actually where we're supporting young people that were at different boxing clubs and organizations across the UK that deliver in our program that we train them and they deliver it. And we're starting to get quite a bit of international interest. So we might be working in North America soon. And we've also created a, a boxing therapy training program. So Amazing. we're hoping to train therapists to allow them to become boxing therapists and work with different communities. So if anybody's interested, obviously, then look us up. That is so cool. That's such a great initiative and I really hope that people do. So um, I'll put a link to like look you guys up in the show notes, but is there a particular way to look at the boxing therapy training? I would probably just email info at empirefightingchance.org and yep. then um, we can get back to people. But, yeah, we've, we've, we've got 25, 20 therapists, I think, booked in for March. Um our boxing club training, we can only do a cohort of five. We've now got a waiting list of 75 clubs that want to take part in the next cohort of training. So one in sort of 13 can get on. So we're getting some traction mm. in the, um, the North America stuff. Hopefully we'll, we'll spread the word of boxing far and wide. Yeah, that's so cool. I'll definitely be staying tuned to see what happens next. Um, but Martin, thanks so much for your time. And I, I love, absolutely love the work that you're doing. And I was also so pleased just to talk to someone who is so analytical about it as well, which is, um, yeah, just think really important. And I hope people take a little bit of an idea around that too, the importance of measuring our failures and, and understanding, you know, using that as feedback to understand what to do next. I think that's a real key. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I'm just going to stop recording here. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, wonderful listeners, for making it right to the end of the podcast. 
We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you.